0: we back to you with some announcements before we get into this week's episode. Elm Europe will be taking place June 8th and 9th in Paris, France. Evan Sabliki and Richard Feldman will be speaking, and the rest of the speaker lineup is online. Early bird tickets are sold out, but standard tickets are still available. For more information and to register, visit almEurope.org. The Erlang User Conference will be taking place in Stockholm, Sweden, on the 8th and 9th of June, with training on the 7th and the 12th through the 16th. Early bird tickets are available and end on May 22nd. And tickets for the trainings end on May 14th. For more information and to register, visit www.erling-factory.com slash EUC2017. ZuriHack 2017 will be taking place in Zurich on the 9th through the 11th of June. ZuriHack 2017 is a three-day Haskell hackathon hosted at the HSR Hochschule for Technik Vapersville, a fantastic venue located right at Lake Zurich and providing space for 300 participants. For more information and to register, visit zurihack.info. Oslo Elm Day is a one-day conference about the Elm programming language and practical use of Elm in Norway and the Nordics. It will be held in Oslo, Norway, Saturday, June 10th. Visit osloelmday.no for more information and to register. on Barcelona will be taking place June 19th through 20th. A new and unusual non-profit conference focused on programming languages and emerging challenges in industry... CURRI-ON is a new conference focused on the intersection of emerging languages and emerging challenges in industry, as well as new ideas and paradigms in software development. For more information and to keep an eye open for registration, visit www.curry-on.org/2017. O'Reilly Fluent Conference will be taking place June 19th through 22nd in San Jose, California. Fluent spotlights the crucial technologies and frameworks of the web stack. JavaScript, HTML5, CSS, React, Angular, Containers, Docker, and other emerging tools that are transforming the way web developers work. Save 20% with discount code USRG on most passes. Visit com slash pub slash cpc slash 61309 for more information. Euroclosure will be taking place in Berlin, Germany on July 20th and 21st. Euroclosure is the biggest closure conference in Europe. Founded in 2012, the conference is a great place to meet Closure developers and learn about what is happening in the language, and the community, and in companies using Clojure. Visit 2017.euroclosure.org for more information and to register. Buzz Conference, and non-profit open space, unconference about functional programming taking place from the 3rd to the 5th of August in Germany near Frankfurt. They provide a platform for people to meet, teach, and learn about functional programming related topics in any language. Ticket registration is open, and you can find out more at www.bus-conf.org. Strangeloop is coming up. Strangeloop is a multidisciplinary conference that brings together developers and thinkers building tomorrow's technology in fields such as programming languages, databases, distributed systems, AI and machine learning, security, and the web. It will be held in St. Louis, Missouri on September 28th through the 30th at the Peabody Opera House. Registration opens in early June. So check out theestrangeloop.com for more information and to keep updated as announcements happen. Lambda World is back, taking place in Cadiz, Spain on October 26th and 27th. The call for papers is now open, so make sure to submit your talk or workshop. To submit your presentation and for more information, visit www.lambda.world. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned you would like to show your support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. You can find out more and support the podcast at www.patreon.com slash fngeekery. And a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at FunctionalGeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us, we have Evan Hubinger. Evan, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, no problem. So, I'm Evan. I am the creator of the Coconut Programming Language, which is a functional programming that compiles to Python. I'm also an undergraduate student majoring in mathematics and computer science at Harvey Mudd College, and I have worked as a software engineer for Yelp and Ripple and will be working for Google.
0: And Coconut got put on my radar through a comment on the site asking for guests. So someone put Coconut Language on, looked into it, and looked like an interesting idea of a functional programming language based on Python. Hadn't seen many of those, so wanted to reach out and talk to you about why, what it is, how it works, what prompted you to do it. So I guess let's just start a little bit out with, you said you're an undergrad, you've already got some work experience. What got you into software and how did you get started and first exposed to software? And then we'll eventually segue into why functional programming on your radar.
1: Absolutely, yeah. So I sort of got into programming first through Python. Python was sort of my first love in terms of programming. I started with just throwing together some random Hello World stuff, but eventually I just found it really fun. I kept throwing together Python scripts for all sort of different things that I need to do. I wrote Python scripts for various math stuff I was learning. I wrote it to play games, to create different web applications, and it every time I sort of need to do a project, I would just always turn to Python. I thought it was really interesting. It was really fun and sort of subsumed my life for many years. So I really started in the Python world and I still really am heavily involved in the Python world. I got into functional programming in high school when I was first introduced to Haskell. I sort of immediately fell in love with the sort of simplicity and the just beauty of the language and the tools that it provided. And since then, functional programming has sort of been one of the things that I've been most interested in and have spent a lot of my time sort of looking into and working on. So, yeah, I'm really excited.
0: So I definitely want to touch on the high school and high school. There's a little bit of a tongue twister for you. <laughs> you got your start on Python. What put Python on your radar? And what got you into just starting programming to begin with that said, OK, well, now I've got this tool set and I can use it to help with. Homework and whatever else that I might need to do. What was that first exposure?
1: Yeah. So I started programming in middle school. I think that very first exposure was through like a summer camp. It was very poorly taught, actually, but it wasn't really the sort of point of, Oh, I'm really going to learn Python. It was just the exposure really that did it for me because it was as soon as I saw, wow, you can use this to do so many cool things. That was sort of what really got me moving and showed me sort of this is actually really fun. So yeah, I think it was like seventh or eighth grade when I just started to figure out what Python was, learn sort of the basic principles. And it was sort of after that, I just kept doing project after project after project, just to learn and to understand and just because I thought it was really fun. And so That was sort of my introduction, and I, since then, have not stopped using Python every day for all the different things that I work on, all the things that I sort of look into, which was really why the fact that I was so focused on Python and have been for sort of used it for so much in my life, sort of why when I learned about functional programming, I was like, oh, like, why can't Python do this? So, yeah. As far as Haskell, it was almost sort of by chance that I was introduced to it because a friend was just like, oh, take a look. I saw a thought. this this look really cool? And I was like, huh, that does look really cool. I've always sort of been into the high level sort of mathematical concepts of programming and computer science and functional programming is sort of has a beauty and a simplicity to it that I just was sort of immediately attracted to. And once I sort of started working in Haskell and started to sort of understand what was going on. The sort of productivity that you can get with it as well as is, is amazing. Uh, you know, one of the things that I love to say about functional programming is that it's the best way to write your algorithm, it's the best way to understand it's the most readable, because functional programming fundamentally means that you can always see exactly these are my inputs, these are my outputs, these are exactly the transformations that I've done along the way. And you can just look at it and see, that's how it works. And so I've always thought that functional programming really was the paradigm.
0: And so you get exposed to Haskell, just random classmate then, not as far as any course curriculum that you're doing for a computer science course or a computer math course or anything where they're saying, hey, we're going to use Haskell.
1: Yeah. So I didn't really have any very official exposure to computer science until college, sort of everything that I did up until that point was very much just, I found it interesting and and fun. And I sort of looked into it on my own. Certainly in college, I have taken courses on functional programming and on on various different languages. And that's, that's definitely been really interesting. And I've enjoyed that. But definitely my first exposure to it, no, was not in an academic setting at all. It was just because I found it and I thought
0: it was cool. And what other languages were you exposed to before you got into Haskell? If you're going Python, was it just pretty much Python and that was your whole world with programming, or were there any others? And what I'm wondering is, here are some of these people, if you're like if you catch it early enough before your patterns are done, functional programming makes sense. Was it right. one of those things you caught it early enough and it made sense and you'd have to unlearn a bunch of stuff? Or did it manage to you caught it at the same time that you were doing some of your high school course curriculum, which kind of says if I actually want to do some calculus or geometry calculations, this thing makes it actually like almost line for line what I'm doing and walking through. So now I do Haskell. What was the thing that you think when you looked at Haskell and said, oh, I get this. This is different. And it's clear to me. Like it's an easy sell. It's not one of those things. I've been doing this and I'm like, I like what I'm doing. And I'm not sure that the reasonability and every other argument that you made that a lot of functional programmers make really holds true for a lot of people. Cause that's not just the easy sell. It's like, Hey, functional programming is easy to reason about. Look, it's immutable. People are like, but this is different enough that I don't buy that. So what was the thing that helped you buy that early on that said, I'm going all in and I'm going all in enough that eventually I'm going to write a functional programming language that goes back down to Python. So I can still use that.
1: Right. So I think a lot of it was definitely the very first time that I was using Haskell was sort of for math originally. And so I definitely think that was sort of one of the things that let me appreciate, like you were saying, oh, like this is, I just type line for line exactly the math that I've been learning, and and it just works. But more than that, it was sort of the paradigm I just found so easy to think about. The difference in the sort of speed at which I could write Programs, the sort of efficiency and understandability of what I was doing was way, way bigger when I started working on Haskell. And even sort of going back to Python, it was sort of, oh, when I write my code in Python in a sort of functional style, when I make it so that I don't modify any state in the body of my functions, suddenly it turns out that everything is a lot easier to understand and it's easier to continue to write code. And so it was just sort of being introduced to there's this other paradigm out there that makes it easier to do what you enjoy doing that was just sort of clicked. And I was like, oh, and it's also the sort of I was talking a little bit earlier about the sort of more theoretical, more logical side. One of the great things about Haskell in particular is just the way that sort of every component fits together in a sort of very clear, logical style, right? like the type system is literally just first order logic, right? You know how each individual system, each individual component logically fits together and how it all makes sense in a way that makes it sort of really easy to to reason about and to think about. And I definitely think there's also a component of just, I think a lot of people can sort of do object oriented programming their whole life. And then they see functional programming, they're like, what's up with this? I, I don't understand. Why would you like limit yourself? And I think seeing it, from the perspective of somebody who, at that point, had not done all that much programming in his life, was sort of seeing it from the perspective of, wow, this actually really is independently something that's really useful and really powerful. And so I really thought, as soon as I started working on Haskell, that that was sort of really big. You also mentioned sort of what other languages that I had been working on. I did a lot of stuff sort of around that time in JavaScript as well, which was interesting because it was actually... One of the things that JavaScript has that a lot of other languages don't have is there are a lot of languages, tiny languages that compile to JavaScript. You've got like CoffeeScript and LiveScript and all these sort of other things. In many ways, that served as the example for what I would later do with Coconut.
0: And you kind of mentioned bringing those functional ideas back into Python. But when you were writing your Python to begin with, before you hit Haskell, were there any of those foundations that you already kind of were like, oh, I'm already kind of familiar with this? the maps reduce filters, or was this a Python that kind of ignored all that kind of stuff? Because you can do some of that stuff in Python, if I understand correctly. My Python's very limited in scope of what I've played with, but what was the extent that you had some exposure by the time you started approaching functional programming?
1: Right. Yeah, so one of the nice things about Python is that it really is a very sort of multi-paradigm language. And if you really uh, learn and understand Python, it sort of gives you a window into learning and understanding a lot of other things. So when I sort of first started doing Haskell, you know, one of the things that a lot of people can sometimes find confusing is the idea of higher order functions. In Python, higher-order function is something you use all the time for all sorts of things, and so it didn't even strike me as something that would be sort of controversial in any way. It seemed, well, obviously, that this is an object, and I can pass it like any other object I would to any function that I want to. Similarly, with the sort of standard operations, map, reduce, fold, whatever you want to call it, and a lot of the sort of standard generic sort of functional algorithms as well were sort of things that I was familiar with. Map and reduce, for example, uh Both exist in Python. Map even exists in Python as uh list comprehensions as well, which are really sort of powerful tools. So that sort of stuff is in Python. But there's, of course, a lot of other things that are missing from Python. Powerful features of Haskell like lazy evaluation, pattern matching, or sort of currying. A lot of that stuff isn't in Python. And so there still even was a lot of new stuff that I did find fascinating and really interesting as well. So uh, it sort of definitely went both ways in the sense that like one helps the other and vice versa.
0: And then you mentioned as part of your undergraduate, you have gone out and taken courses around other functional languages. That seems rare that by the time you're actually taking this, that you've had the ability to understand what it is that you're learning at the time you're learning it. And I know I've had talks with a bunch of other people in the past that is like, oh, yeah, I learned and looked at the Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programs book, the MIT 101 course book. And it's like, by the time I went through it, it was lost on me. And I didn't really appreciate it until 10 years later. What are you finding as you're going through these courses about, I guess, going in with a concept and actually seeking out these courses and maybe compared to some of your classmates who are taking this because, well, I need an elective, so I'm going to go take the LISP AI course or the Haskell course, but I'm not really sure why I'm taking it. It was just more directed to me. So what's some of that stuff that you're finding there that says, I'm at the position where going through college and having, or not having, but electing to take these courses, I get it now.
1: Right. So Harvey Mudd is a really special place. So Harvey Mudd, it's a very small sort of undergraduate only institution that is devoted solely to sort of science, technology, engineering, mathematics that is sort of very prestigious and very sort of focused on learning and teaching students to sort of have a very good understanding of the sort of different fields of math and science and sort of very rigorous in-depth understanding of sort of whatever they go into. And MUD's course, for example, on functional programming is day one from the very beginning. So we like the very first sort of intro CS classes is all taught in Python, but the sort of very beginning intro CS is the sort of Python that I did after I learned Haskell. It's the sort of Python where you learn through sort of, uh now I know like somebody who was is, who is taking the class that like one of the things that they kept stressing over and over again was the sort of, this is when you use the sort of generic map operation. This is how you reduce. This is sort of like very sort of like sort of rigorous specific introduction to how do you use functional programming? And then let's sort of right off the bat. After that course, there's another course that's sort of uh, very in depth into Racket, which is a Lisp dialect, and sort of going into what does it mean if you're just doing this sort of pure functional programming? And so beyond that, also like Mud has a lot of other courses that are more advanced into like Haskell and sort of functional programming in general. But from the very beginning, Mud is sort of very willing to try and convince you that programming is is fun. It's awesome. And the sort of best way to do it is to use this sort of wonderful new paradigm of functional programming. And so I love MUD as an institution, and I think that its devotion to functional programming in particular is sort of very admirable.
0: And you mentioned some of the ways they structure. Is there anything in specific that you think it would be a good highlight or points to make for people who are trying to introduce others to functional programming, either at an early age or just going off and selling this in the career and say, looking around, sure, I'm coming in and I understand functional programming, but I'm also seeing it be taught by what sounds like really good teachers, really good professors that can make the sell to people who might have been doing whatever language since they first touched the computer back in elementary or middle school, but haven't had that exposure. Is there any highlights that you can say that like, this is what they're getting right? when it comes to teaching people at least the concepts and getting that cell of people excited about this.
1: Right. Well, I think one of the big things is that to learn functional programming, to appreciate and to use functional programming, you don't need to sort of go wholesale right to the sort of purely functional programming language. Functional programming is, it's a paradigm, right? More than it is even a specific language. And so no matter what you already know, no matter what you're already doing, no matter what programming language you start off or are working in, there are ways to sort of start moving your thinking more towards the paradigm of functional programming, more towards the paradigm of, what if I sort of take a step back and write a higher order function for the general approach that I'm using in this case, and then I can keep applying it. Or what if instead of creating this sort of stateful class, what if I can use functions to transform it along the way? Or what if all of these sort of different things that you can use to sort of bring yourself closer to the functional paradigm of thinking, regardless of what language you're working in? And so I think that in a lot of ways, the sort of, way to get into functional programming is if you're not exposed necessarily like you were saying to like really good professors or sort of really good introduction is just no matter what you're already exposed to no matter what you already know there are ways to go from that into what if i just start thinking about this in a more functional manner
0: and so you're getting these exposures to some of these other things you're getting exposure to functional programming in python which you kind of already did the exposure to because that's what you started doing after you got familiar with Haskell. You get exposure to Racket in one of these courses. And having talked with a couple of people on Racket on the podcast, they talk about how it's a great program for writing languages. And you also mentioned your experience to JavaScript and seeing these things like TypeScript and CoffeeScript and all these other scripts that essentially compile, transpile, whatever word the individual language authors do using that says, I'm going to take this language and put it on JavaScript and use JavaScript as the assembly to the web, in a sense, before WebAssembly actually came out. But what were some of those things that started setting that foundation for saying, I'm going to be crazy enough, and I'm just going to write myself a language? And (laughs) there's, I write myself a language just to learn, and then there's, I write myself a language, and I'm going to be crazy enough to write myself a language and put up a website about it instead of just like, I'm putting this up and I'm not publicizing this. If anybody stumbles across it, they can see it's my learning. I'm gonna write myself a Lisps kind of thing. But what else was there that kind of helped register the fact that says, No, this is something I really want to do? I'm assuming maybe something with the internships if you're using Python and you're like, I really want to use this stuff, but what was that stuff that kind of pushed you forward and down the route of starting to realize this needs to be a thing? This vague idea of coconut. Starts to take shape into what it actually is,
1: right? So, in response to sort of, did it come from? Oh, it's just sort of a hobby, a side project. To look into, or are you sort of really trying to put this forth as a thing that people are going to use? The answer is, I actually did both. So, before I built Coconut at all, before I even got started on it, as soon as I sort of had started looking at the functional programming, I immediately sort of went back and was like, I, I got to try to apply this to Python. And I actually wrote a functional programming language that was interpreted in Python around that time. And it was, it was a huge project. I spent a lot of time on it. And I learned a lot about programming language design, sort of how one writes a programming language and sort of what the virtues of a good programming language were from that because I did not write a good programming language. <laughs> it was a mess. It's still on by GitHub. It's called Rabbit. Uh, I wouldn't recommend using it. Like I said, because it was a learning experience. It was something that I did to sort of figure out, oh, so this is what it's like to write a programming language. This is what it's like to sort of implement fun- concepts of functional programming. It was incredibly slow because it was interpreted in Python. So it's like multiple levels interpreting the programming language. There were, there were lots of problems with it. But it, it was a huge learning experience. And after I did that, I was like, maybe there's actually something here, though. Because I had written it out of a need. And that need was still unfulfilled. And so I thought, well, maybe I can use what I learned from doing this the wrong way to do it the right way. And that was where Coconut came from. That was where I was like, all right, now I'm going to start, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to design a language that I think is actually going to be useful for people, a language that I think people will actually really want to use to solve that same problem that I found myself. So that was the sort of train that led me to where I got to
0: So you just start with Rabbit, and you realize this is useful in a learning tool. It's a mess. You are still finding a need for this, though. You still want something here. Were there any other courses that helped bring it? Or what was some of the stuff that helped inform that says, okay, now it's time to start over. Now it's time to write a new thing. I've encountered pain points. I haven't necessarily encountered them into learning the lesson from it of like, how to resolve those pain points, what were some of those things that helped you resolve those pain points as you went forward and say, okay, now I think I can do this. And now I think I can make a better language that's more of a real language versus just a hobby language.
1: Right. So one of the big things that I already mentioned was you have to write a compiler, not an interpreter, because that's the only way to sort of make it at a reasonable speed. And Coconut, as it is actually now, a lot of the things that you pass through Coconut actually end up being a lot faster because there's a lot of sort of optimizations that you can do when you're writing a compiler to Python. But sort of that was one of the big changes was like, all right, I'm going to write a compiler this time. Another big thing just on the design side of things was I went about it, originally from this perspective of, oh, I'm going to be, it's going to be totally sort of theoretically perfect. I'm going to invent a new symbol for every possible sort of theoretical operation. I'm going to sort of invent all of this new sort of cool machinery. And it's like, that's, not actually, it turns out, a good way to design a programming language, because Python, I think, is sort of the epitome of why that doesn't work, right? The reason that Python is so elegant, is so beautiful, is because everything is designed to be eminently readable, to be sort of incredibly easily understandable, so that you can look at it, and you can be like, "For x in range? Oh, I sort of understand what that means, right? You can be like, you're going through all of the things in a thing, right? You can look at something that says, if X is true. And you feel like, oh, it just reads, right, exactly the way you want it to. And so one of the big changes that I made was Python did a lot of things right. So I'm going to preserve the fundamental structure of what Python did. And so one of the sort of very big design decisions that I made from the very beginning was Coconut is going to preserve any valid Python 3 syntax. I want to add new things on top of Python 3 that contribute to functional programming. I want to give you match statements. I don't want to give you algebraic data types. I want to give you all of these sort of useful tools of functional programming and I want to do so in a way that makes it sort of look readable, that look understandable, that makes it look like Python. And I'm going to do it on top of Python. And then I'm going to compile it down into something that you can run quickly and efficiently just as you would any other Python script.
0: So additive to Python 3 sounds like an interesting perspective. And it sounds like some of the stuff that flow, I want to say, or TypeScript or some of these other things that say you can start taking advantage of the new features. And it gives you an interesting migration story in that perspective where it's like, look, anything else that's valid already is still valid. And then we're just going to give you additional stuff. So when you find that thing that you want to take advantage of, no problem. You don't need to go rewrite. So that migration sounds like an interesting story. What was the prompt of realizing that anything that I have that's already there is valid? Right.
1: So I mentioned that I had sort of done some JavaScript. And one of the big tools in JavaScript is called Babel. And what it does is it lets you compile sort of the newest version of JavaScript back down to sort of older versions. And it was struck that the Python community has such a divide between Python 2 and Python 3 to the extent that people go way out of their way to write code that works the same on both versions. And it's not easy to do so. There are a lot of tools like 6 that make it easier, but writing code that's sort of version invariant is hard enough that people often just give up and they just go to write only Python 3. And I was like, well, why don't you just compile it back to Python 2? And so one of the things that I did early on with Coconut, like I said, was we're going to make this syntax a strict superset of Python 3, and I'm going to make sure that I can compile it down into any version.
0: And that sounds like a lot of insight. And the reason I say that is, as you mentioned, that's been a problem that I've heard of in the Python community, where it's this huge divide that people are never going to move from 2 to 3 because there's so much backwards breaking code. But it's one of those things that you say it, it sounds obvious, but it's not, apparently. And so what was the thing that helped you just say, if I do this, I take three, I get coconut down to Python two, plus I also get Python three down and I can use two, three and coconut all in my same files. What was that kind of thing that helped drive that inspiration for you to realize the value there that says, look, even if you want to just take Python three to Python two, use coconut, don't take advantage of everything else. That's awesome. There. But this at least gets you using the coconut tool set to get you to backwards compatibility.
1: Right. So it was sort of really just that that part of it just came out of a sort of nuisance because I, like any other Python developer, wanted to write code that was sort of universal and would work on any Python version. And I was like, well, what are the tools that I can use for that? And then there's 3 to 2 and 2 to 3, which are converters from Python 2 to Python 3 and vice versa. But that's not very useful if you want to get universal code, if you want to get code that works on any version the same so that you don't have to sort of submit two versions of the code to sort of any place where you'd want to run it. So the way to write universal code was you're supposed to use six and six is great. I love six. There were a lot of features of coconut that were based on some of the ways that six gets around weird incompatibilities but using 6 is still more frustrating and more annoying than just using python 3 and there's uh, especially because there's a lot of things that python 3 adds to the core syntax for example that you you no matter what you do you can't get back into python 2 without some sort of a compiler and so it just seems to me, like the sort of clear solution, like I said, from, from looking at like tools in other languages like Babel, was you, you just compile the Python 3 back down to Python 2. Or rather, what Coconut does, you compile Python 3 down to universal Python. You compile it down to, right, three, like I was saying, 3 to 2 already does Python 3 to Python 2. But then what you really want is you want universal code on any version. And so Coconut, by default, will just take Python 3 code and compile it down into universal Python code that will run on any version.
0: And so if that was one of the lessons learned from Rabbit, and you're now doing Coconut, what are some of those other lessons you've learned that you've started to learn things that make a bad language just by putting those things in and seeing hints of what makes a good language? What are some of those things that you say, if anybody goes off and plays, you mentioned compiler, you mentioned some other stuff in passing, but... What are some of those things that you think makes a good language or starting out? And you may have actually learned that from Rabbit or maybe you even learned that from Coconut now. And you're like, oh, yeah, here's a couple of pain points that if I could do this, I understand. Or even, heck, the Python 2 to Python 3 compatibility issues around the stuff you're working on. What are some of the stuff that you've seen that kind of informs what makes a good language for you?
1: Right. So one of the things I talked about earlier was the design. And one of the big things about the design of coconut, like I said, was sort of, I'm going to write it in a way that is is actually readable. One of the big insights of Python is that uh, in the sort of Python programming principles and the sort of design of the language was that code gets read way more often than it gets written. And so making code readable is way more important than making it writable. And so one of the sort of big Things that I tried to do was we're not going to have like some weird fancy syntax for doing pattern matching. We're going to have you write the word match. If you want to make an algebraic data type, you're just going to write the word data. So that instead of trying to have these sort of syntaxes that are sort of potentially hard to understand and hard to read, it's sort of very straightforward and very easy to just look at it and be like, oh, that's what's going on. One of the other big things was sort of looking at The way that sort of functional programming plays into it, because like I was saying, the pain problems, the pain points that I was having with Python, a lot of them were around. I found this incredibly powerful new paradigm of functional programming and that I can't come back and apply it like I would want to. Right. So Python is a wonderful multi paradigm programming language, but there's a lot of things that are just really hard if you want to carry them over from functional programming. If you want to get sort of uh, lazily evaluated data structures, lazily evaluated sort of uh, lists and operations, you have to sort of turn to iterators, which is often not the sort of most convenient interpretation. If you want to try and lean on sort of immutable data structures or immutable data types, you have to sort of subclass tuple, which is often not exactly what you want to do. And you have to do a lot of sort of redefining to make it look the way you want to. Name tuple is a great sort of uh, utility for that. There's still a lot of sort of things that name tuple lacks, as well as the syntax is really ugly. Once you start getting to the point where, okay, I'm actually going to recreate, this is what I want. I want to get this algebraic data type that is immutable, that has these fields, that has these sort of operations, that has these properties. I want to be able to map on the fields inside of it and have a method to do that. And you end up with, oh my God, look at all this boilerplate. And that happens a lot of times when you try to implement functional stuff in Python, right? You want to curry a function and you end up having to do like, okay, I'm going to import functionals, and I'm going to do functuals.partial and I'm going to have to put the, all of the arguments in there like that. And it's like, oh my God, it's not looking readable anymore, right? Like I was saying, the sort of fundamental principle that you you know keep coming back to is let's we want to make it readable. Like readability is, is sort of the most fundamental principle. And functional programming in Python is doable, but it's not readable. And some stuff, it really isn't even doable. Like pattern matching, right, is just basically just implemented from scratch in Coconut. And so there's a lot of problems that you run into when you try to apply this sort of beautiful paradigm of functional programming to Python. You're like, ah, my code's looking ugly now. Which sucks because Python is such a beautiful language. When you write imperative code in Python, it looks prettier than any other language, in my opinion, that you find. And yet when you write functional code in Python, it looks ugly. And that's so unfortunate, right? And so one of the big things of Coconut was like, all right, we're going to make functional programming in Python look and feel as clean and elegant as imperative programming. We're going to sort of do what python did for imperative programming and make it so that you can write imperative code in this incredibly clean elegant easy to read style and we're going to do that same thing for functional programming
0: and so i want to elaborate a little bit more about what makes code readable you said a couple of things but i want to dig in just a little deeper because there's a debate of this is readable and you hear a lot of people say haskell is very readable now pronounceable maybe not but readable yes yes But they will admit that it is not familiar. So it's like once you're familiar with this, it becomes readable versus I can have something that is familiar and maybe that's readable, maybe that's not. So when you take this stance of what makes something readable at that level, what makes something readable for you that you think is readable versus just familiar and say, is it just it reads like English? So if you're familiar with English, it's readable or... There's an inherent structure here that's just global and unified, and there's the one way of doing things. What is that balance between how you define readable?
1: Right. So I love Haskell. I think Haskell is a great language. I mean, sort of the big departure from Haskell, of course, though, is Haskell is this sort of very pure functional programming, right? And Python, of course, is not. And so by extension, Coconut is not. The point, though, is like you were saying, readability, of course, is defined in terms of what's familiar. And to a person who's done a lot of sort of work in pure functional programming, like pure functional programming concepts are going to be familiar, right? And Haskell's going to be readable. But the goal of Coconut is to be readable to somebody who does Python, right? The goal is to be readable to your sort of standard average everyday Python developer. That you can look at it and you can be like, oh, I think I can sort of figure out what's going on here. And so pattern matching, like I was saying, is sort of organized to that extent. It's like, okay, you're just, we're going to say match. And then we're going to have a pattern, and then it's going to be in, and then it's going to be the thing you want to match against, right? And on some level, right, there is some point at which you have to take a departure from that. So, Coconut, for example, introduces basically one new symbol because we're like, okay, I'm going to got to introduce something to try and cover some of the use cases, but let's let's try and minimize the sort of new symbols that we're introducing. So, Coconut just has one, uh, and it's the dollar sign, and it's basically is on a high level interpreted as lasify this make it lazy. Do this operation that I want you to do, but do it in a lazy manner. So you put it before a function call, or you put it before uh, index. And when you put it before a function call, it means partial application. When you put it before an index, it means uh, sort of, I want to get this thing at this index, but sort of like treat the operation in a sort of lazy manner. So it sort of works on iterators, and it works on the sort of built-in objects that you get from doing like math and whatnot in Coconut. Yeah, and so the basic idea was, in general, you want to try and make it so that the sort of set of things that people need to know to be able to understand and read the language is as small as possible. So in this case, it's Python, and beyond that, just like English, and maybe like one new symbol. And so that's the goal. I do agree that there's some difference between that and readability, because in Haskell, you've got, okay, Haskell's really readable if you understand what's going on. But to some extent, that's sort of true of almost anything. And so the point is to try and say, okay, if you want to do functional programming in Python, if you're a Python developer and you already know some of the way that Python works, and Python, of course, is also a really easy-to-learn language because it's, it is so, in such large part, it just borrows from English and math. And so then Coconut is like, all right, we're going to borrow from Python, we're going to continue with the tradition of borrowing from English, and we're going to maybe throw in, like, one or so more symbol, uh, and then we're going to have a product that, okay, pretty much anybody can spend a little bit of time looking into, and then they can really understand and use the sort of great effect.
0: Okay, and the other question is, if this is Python and everything is additive, and then you compile down to universal Python, there's a couple questions here is, are you changing any of the semantics on compiling down. And the reason I'm thinking is immutability versus mutability. If someone's writing things in a mutable manner, and then you've got this more pure side of coconut, which looks at immutability, well, now you've got to interop to it. So is there just compiler tricks that say, well, you think you're mutable, but you're not, and I'm just going to help make that? Or, well, Python supports a class system, but the class system is kind of at odds, especially around mutability with pure functions. What is some of that interop stuff? If you're doing an additive, is there anything that you're doing on the compilation that helps that interop story? And some of the what I'm thinking of it is you hear Python's one of these big data science languages. So there's a lot of these libraries that are out there that may or may not be written mutable, but... You've got all these kind of math libraries, and if you want to use them in your functional program, because they're already kind of mathy, and you're pulling the stuff, how are you fitting in some of these different paradigms and helping to make sure that when you write in Coconut, but you're using the standard Python 3 as a library or anything else, what's some of that interop story that helps lead you to be able to keep on the more functional side without getting a lot of contamination of stuff that you're having to do? which hinders the readability
1: right okay so i'll start with the sort of interoperability question and then i'll sort of move on to the sort of compiler tricks so first interoperability like i was saying coconut compiles straight to python universal python so any python library that you want to have access to you've got and vice versa if any python code wants to have access to any coconut code it's there And so to make that happen, yeah, you've got to have some sort of tricks so that if you write an algebraic data type and you want it to be immutable, and then somebody else imports your thing in pure Python, it better still be immutable. And so you have to do some sort of Python tricks along those lines. So I'll start with probably one of the biggest tricks that Coconut pulls off is regards to tail recursion elimination and tail call optimization. So one of the sort of big pain points with writing functional programming in Python is recursion has some problems in Python, because every time you recurse, it always throws a new stack frame on the stack. You always are getting closer and closer to the sort of maximum recursion depth, which is what a stack overflow would be in Python. And so there's some natural problems then that come. Well, like, what if I want to write a recursive function to sort of handle of the sort of things that I want to do. And so the sort of natural solution to that in most other programming languages is, well, okay, you write your function in a tail recursive style where you're just returning a call to the function itself, and then we can optimize away the call because then you don't actually need to throw anything else on the stack. You can just jump up to the beginning of the function and re-execute it. But Python can't do that. So one of the things that Coconut does is it's like, okay, we're going to give Python tail recursion elimination. And so every function that you write in Coconut, Coconut goes through and it looks at your returns and it says, okay, can I optimize these? And if it can't, it turns it into either a wall loop. And so then you can just go right back up to the beginning of the function with the same arguments or If you're calling a different function, right? So the wall lib version, that's for tail recursion elimination. But then if you're sort of just calling another function, you want to do some tail call optimization, then that we can just do by raising an error and then catching it in a special decorator. And so we can have this sort of way where it's like, all right, we're going to kill the stack frame. We're going to jump up and we're going to make it so that no matter how many times you want to recurse, we'll make it happen. And so similarly, Coconut pulls a lot of tricks along those lines. So you were talking about immutability. The way that Coconut gives you immutability is via data statements, which are the sort of way that you can do algebraic data types in Coconut. The way that these are implemented is the sort of basis is on the name tuple, which is a really awesome thing that the Sander library provides, which lets you create these sort of immutable classes. But there's some problems with name tuple, for example, because it doesn't always... There's a lot of stuff that we want to be able to do with algebraic data types that isn't necessarily covered by the things that NamedTuple gives you. Like, we want to be able to, the sort of equivalent of a Haskell's fmap, and we want to be able to say, okay, we've got this algebraic data type. I want to apply a map to all of the sort of contents of it, and then I want to have the output be another thing that is of the same type as that thing I gave you in the first place. And that's still a little bit harder. And so there's a lot of stuff like that where it's like, okay, we're going to add on these sort of extra tricks in compilation to make it so that it just works the way you want it to. And sort of similarly, I mentioned pattern matching before. Pattern matching is sort of another one of the sort of big areas where Coconut does a lot of work on the compilation side. Because natively, the best that you can get as far as pattern matching is concerned in Python is like, well, I can have A, B on the left-hand side. And if I have a list containing two elements, I can deconstruct it. But that's about the best that you can do. And so going beyond that is, all right, we're going to have head-tail pattern matching. We're going to allow you to pattern match Against instead of any iterable, we're going to let you do dictionaries, we're going to let you do sets, we're going to let you pattern match against algebraic data types so that you can deconstruct the algebraic data type and the specific type of the algebraic data type inside of the pattern matching statement. We're going to sort of include all of these sort of different features in Python. And sort of that requires a lot of compilation tricks because you have to actually go through what Coconut does is it looks, it walks through the pattern and it keeps track of all of the different conditions that it has to check. And then all of the different assignments that it has to make after it checks those conditions. And so you end up with this sort of like big list of things that it ends up being a little bit a little bit hacky on the Python side. Right. But on the coconut side, of course, it's just sort of this clean match statement. One other thing is I wanted to talk a little bit. Also, you mentioned sort of interoperability with math libraries like NumPy, for example, in Coconut. That actually was one of the sort of main use cases that a lot of the sort of things of coconut were designed around. So one of the things that I had had problems with and was prompting a lot of the development of the different things of coconut, especially recently, because now that sort of coconut is open source, there have been a lot of people coming in from the data science community being like, this is awesome. Can you sort of improve on this feature or add this thing? And so a big focus of Coconut has been we're going to make it as easy and intuitive as possible to use the tools of NumPy and, and, Sci- and, and SciPy and all these sort of scientific computing utilities of Python in Coconut. And so to that end, some of the things that Coconut adds to help with that is you can sort of really easily construct nice partial applications, not just for, like, a function, but let's say I want to take in some arbitrary numpy array, and then I want to do a bunch of methods on it, but I want to maybe map the method application over the thing, and then write all of these sort of like various different things. And so in coconut, that just looks like, all right, we say dot method application this thing, then pipeline into dot method application this thing with these arguments, and then we're going to pipeline into a partially applied map with this other sort of application, and the result of that is that it looks really smooth in exactly the sort of same way that you would define an algorithm in math, where you could be like, you do this operation to the data, then you do this operation to the data, then you do this operation to the data, and then the end result is the thing we want, right? I want to take my matrix, I want to sort of decompose it into its eigenvalues and eigenvectors, and then I want to change the basis or whatever, you have all of these operations and we can chain them together in a sort of really nice, elegant way, so that if you want to do any of these sort of data analysis stuff in Python, it's really, really easy to see what's going on if you write in Coconut.
0: And I think that gives a good overview of Coconut, the language, and how it works, and a lot of this stuff all together, so that eliminates a lot of questions I have. I do want to touch on current maturity, what it looks like in the future, where it's going, what things are on the radar, but we are getting close to the hour time we go over if we need to, but do want to make sure we take a brief pause that says, is there anything else that we haven't covered that you think we should at least raise up, put on people's radar, make mention to dig in a little deeper from things we've talked about or haven't talked about yet.
1: One of the sort of interesting things about what coconut does that I have sort of used in other areas is parsing and compilation So you mentioned pain points earlier and sort of like what problems have you had that then you've sort of really been able to sort of jump over and and that coconut has really helped you with. Well, one of the big things is parsing. So parsing is hard, it turns out. And probably one of the biggest things in writing coconut was, all right, I'm going to make sure to nail down the parser. And so I'll diverge for a second. Funny story. In writing the parser for coconut and in trying to get a lot of those things to work, I ended up pushing Python to its limits in a lot of places. So I actually manage to both segfault and stack overflow python. Which is not supposed to happen if you're not writing a C extension, which I was not. I was just writing vanilla Python. But it turns out if you have a recursive iterator that references itself, you would expect it to like just raise an error. But the Python interpreter actually crashes with like the Stack Overflow. And so one of the things that I had to do in Coconut was I actually had to add a separate decorator specifically to handle the scenario where my Python is segfaulting. How do I fix this problem? And so that was sort of a fun pain point. But getting back to what I was talking about, about parsing, the knowledge that I used in in sort of understanding being able to sort of write a really good parser in Python for Coconut, which is based on a library called PyParsing, which I actually sort of, along the way, I also contributed a bunch of bug fixes to PyParsing because Coconut was pushing pipe parsing to the extreme in a lot of ways. But after that, I mentioned I worked at Yelp for some time. And at the beginning, one of the things that I worked on for Yelp was we're going to refactor all of Yelp's code. And the way that I did that was I'm going to use the same parsing techniques that I did for Coconut. I'm going to write this sort of generic parsing system that uses these sort of same techniques to automatically refactor Yelp's code base. And this was actually published as uh, a blog post that I wrote about the utility called Undet, which uses that same concept of parsing and that same sort of techniques to be used for refactoring. So that was a sort of big fun project that sort of stemmed from some of the things I learned. But yes, I guess those are some other sort of side things that I thought of while we were going along.
0: Okay, and we'll get links to the blog post there in the show notes. And so with that covered, I want to make sure we get into... It sounds like it's pretty mature at this point. It's got a fairly decent stabilization factor to it. I'm sure there's more that you want to do, but can you cover its maturation level and where you think it's getting, what features you're still looking to add? For anybody who's picking this up and like, well, how stable is this? What is the level I want? Is this almost done? Is this going to be adding some stuff? Give people a rundown of where this is and it's maturity and what's on might be on the roadmap at some point in the future for those who either want to come in, play with it, use it, maybe introduce it to work if they're in a Python shop, but they're kind of they've got a number of people sold on functional programming or if they even want to come in and help contribute somehow. I don't know what the community level is. Can you give a rundown of that before we wrap up the episode?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, coconut is completely open source and open source license under Apache 2.0 uh And it's sort of totally open to contributors and people that want to take a look. And that sort of happens all the time. Uh I'm sort of the one that, that manages that as the go-to person is on my GitHub. But any sort of anybody is welcome to contribute and I'm, I'm happy to sort of work with you. As far as maturity level, everything that I've mentioned so far is like, I would say, very stable and very mature. And is you should be able to just grab it and go with it. Any of the things that I've talked about. There are sort of new features that I'm working on that are somewhat less mature at this point, point. one of those new features that's coming is already out in the newest version, although it's somewhat in a sort of beta stage, the next version is going to have a more complete implementation, is integrating type checking into Coconut. So one of the big things that functional programming like Haskell has that's really nice is you get all of this sort of pure type checking and sort of pure type inference and all of that sort of wonderful stuff. Uh, And some of the, you know, I was mentioning JavaScript languages earlier. Some of the things like, like TypeScript, obviously, the work for that is all right. We're going to have type checking on top of the language, and so there's been an effort within the Python community recently to implement that. A lot of that has gone through MyPy, which Guido, creator of Python, has sort of been working on and pushing, which is a type checking utility that sort of analyzes these static type annotations that you add and checks them to make sure that they're all correct. One of the big things about that that I sort of immediately saw was there's different syntax for doing type annotations on Python 2 and Python 3. And I was like, that sucks. And Python 3 has added all of this sort of fancy new syntax for doing type annotations where you can say a colon int equals 5. And it's like, okay, I've just annotated a as an integer. Not only can you do that like in a variable declaration, you can do that in function declarations. You can add at the end of a function like arrow int, and that means this function, the return value should be an integer. And so it's added all of this nice syntax, and none of this exists in Python 2. And so I was like, "Well, this is a sort of very clear use case for all right. We're gonna add this to Coconut." And so what I did is, Coconut can take all of those Python three type annotation styles, compile them down to the Python two or your universal type annotation, and then it can automatically run my on the source code on the sort of compiled code and tell you if there are any sort of violations. And not only that, it's actually been added now to the interpreter so that if you open up a coconut interpreter and you're just playing around in coconut, you can even get it to do sort of on-the-go type annotations and type checking in that as well. And so integration with MyPy has been something that I have sort of recently worked on. One other thing, this is kind of jumping back a little bit to the where you were talking about sort of other things that I might want to have interesting. One other thing that I remembered regarding the whole, what about scientific computing and Python thing? One of the really big things that I made sure to do with Coconut was Coconut is very tightly integrated with IPython uh, and Jupyter, which is the standard notebook interface for doing scientific computing in Python. So you can write Coconut code exactly as you would in an IPython notebook or IPython console and integrate with all of the sort of nice features with that, like automatically displaying matplotlib graphs and all of that sort of fancy stuff you can do straight through Coconut. So that's another thing that sort of Coconut gives to that.
0: And real quick on the type system, for anybody who's unfamiliar with the way MyPy might be doing it, is that just one of those, it's going to tell you what it can and tell you the violations it knows about, because you might have untyped libraries that you're pulling in or untyped pieces of your program that you're slowly evolving. Just can you give a very high-level overview of what that type means and maybe MyPy and what you're looking at if you're just using a MyPy in the future for the progress, or if you're looking at going a different route?
1: Right. So most of the stuff I mentioned with MyPy is already doable in Coconut. The sort of only stuff I'm working on at this point is there are sometimes a lot of spurious violations. So I'm trying to iron that out and that'll mostly be fixed in the next version or some things that won't catch as well. So the way that MyPy works basically is that it's, you can make it optional. And so you can tell MyPy, if I don't type my function, just assume that it's sort of any to any, what any type to any other type and MyPy will be like, okay, sure. But it also will try to automatically do inference, even if you don't give it types automatically. And so it'll try to say, okay, I can see that this thing is always going to be a string. And so I'll make sure that then you use it as a string. And so MyPy will do inference by default on anything. But it also, like I said, it supports this sort of optional type annotations. And those type annotations are not necessarily optional. So you can either have the type annotations as sort of another addition to I'm going to make sure to have my code be checked as much as possible. And for some functions, I want to add these type annotations so that you can check those. You can also have MyPy so that it'll just automatically check every single function. And if you don't add a type annotation, it'll say, here's an error. You got to make sure all your functions have type annotations. Either way is a sort of valid way to go with MyPy. You can either go the route of optional type annotations or the route of required type annotations. And MyPy can go with any of those sort of routes. And it's sort of very powerful. As far as libraries are concerned, for a lot of existing libraries, MyPy actually has these sort of stub files where it knows what the type annotations are for all of the functions and modules and stuff that you're importing are. Almost everything from the standard library, Python standard library, for example, is already covered. And a lot of things from other sort of very popular libraries are also covered. If it's not, though, you can just write your own stub file. And so you can say, these are the type annotations for all of the functions that I'm importing, and then just do your type inference from that. So MyPy is a very sort of powerful tool for doing automatic type inference on top of Python, as well uh, now on top of Coconut. So one of the nice things about that, like I was saying, is that it sort of brings Coconut even closer to the sort of realm of the functional programming and the sort of way that you can do sort of more pure-ish functional programming in Coconut which is effectively you're doing more purish functional programming in Python.
0: And it's interesting to hear about MyPy as someone who just sees the outside of Python and just thinking about it as a dynamic language, what kind of static typing and the approach that they're doing to be able to give it to you if so desired.
1: Right. So it's a combination of type inference and the sort of automatic type annotations that are manual type annotations. So the automatic type inference is, like I was saying, it's like, okay, we can actually figure out every like, possible execution branch of this function leaves the return value as a string. So the return value is a string. And then we're going to assume that it is that for any other calls to any other things. And in many ways, that's sort of like very similar to what you can get in Haskell, right? Of course, uh, Haskell's is much more powerful. You've got Hindi Miller and everything. But MyPy is is a sort of very useful tool. And it, in a lot of cases, it can do very powerful type inference to figure out what's going on. what is the type of these things? How can I work? And then beyond that, of course, you can also just have MyPy do the sort of more routine job of what like a c compiler java compiler would do and just make it so you declare the type of all of your functions and then it just checks to make sure okay is it actually always just that type and so both are sort of options and it does this all at compile time it's all just sort of compile time Uh, of course python's not compiled right for coconut it does it at compile time Uh, but for python of course it just does it whenever you run it as a static analyzer on the code which is nice because then you can sort of have this extra check on your code to make sure the types are actually correct. There's, of course, the sort of, you know, everybody loves Haskell because, you know, if the type system works out, if you know that it compiles uh, and you've done your types correctly, there's a good guarantee that it's actually correct, right? Which is, of course, one of the reasons why everybody loves Haskell. So one of the nice things about what Coconut is doing with MyPy is, okay, we're going to try and bring that niceness into Python.
0: So were there any other things kind of on the roadmap getting types in? They're going to be solidified a little bit more in the next release. Is there anything else that people could be looking forward to? Or even kind of on a related note, are there any things that people should just be aware of that? Yes, it's stable. I would like to go back and revisit this. Now that I've done this, there are these pain points. If you try and do this thing, it's not as nice as it could be. But is there anything to just more heads up for people as they come in and are interested in checking out Coconut? That's selling points. They're just, you're going to like a lot of this stuff, but you might not like this kind of thing, even just to go in with eyes open.
1: Sure. Uh, So as far as, first of all, what's going on with recent development, the sort of next release is probably going to be pretty small. It's mostly going to be improvements to mypy. There's some pretty big improvements coming to algebraic data types as far as inheritance and sort of what if you want to have an algebraic data type that contains like an arbitrary number of elements, like an infinite number, not necessarily uh, like a fixed number of elements. Uh, and so there's some, some fun stuff coming on, coming up with algebraic data types uh, and MyPy. Mostly, though, the really big stuff is going to be coming sort of after that next release. There's some idea of the plans for some of the cool stuff that I want to do there. A lot of that is going to be focused on reworking potentially a lot of the ways that functions are written so that we can potentially get rid of return statements entirely, which Coconut already does in a lot of cases. You often don't have to write a return statement if you write your function correctly. But there's a lot of nice things as well that may be coming for the next release after that. So the one that's going to be coming really soon is 1.2.3. The current release is 1.2.2. And then the one that may be coming after that is 1.3.0. As far as pain points, so I mentioned, of course, a lot of the way that Coconut was developed was because I was like, I'm going to actually try to fix the sort of problems that I had with the sort of very first language that I wrote. So I had going into it an idea of a lot of the pitfalls. And so I tried to avoid as many of them as possible. As far as sort of things that may be somewhat confusing at first, I mentioned the dollar sign operator. That one is still... There was a reason, of course, for adding had to at some point add an operator if I wanted to make it so really easy to do some of these things. But the end result of that is that sometimes the code can look a little bit like it's got a good deal of symbols, especially if you're doing, for example, partial application with operator functions, where like if you want to get the operator function for addition, you do like open paren plus close paren. And if you then have open paren plus close paren, and then you've got a dollar sign, and then you've got open paren like a two, it's like, well, what's going on there? There's a hopefully going to be a new syntax coming for that in one point three, I think that will hopefully make a that I'm thinking about making a nicer way to write that, but for the most part, I would say one other thing that i'm that it's going to be sort of working on to try and improve a little bit is the way that function composition works. It's a little bit unfortunate the way that the precedence was set for function composition. I've sort of gone back and forth between where I wanted to set the precedence for function composition. that's sort of a little bit complex, I'm not exactly sure if I made the right decision on that one. So that maybe changed in 1.3 as well. For the most part, though, I think that all of the sort of core language features that are in Coconut right now are sort of very stable, should be very easy to understand, and I think are sort of very useful and powerful for people to just sort of start hacking away at in terms of trying to do functional programming in Python.
0: That sounds good. So we've covered a lot about Coconut. We mentioned your rabbit just as your background. If people are interested in... Checking out a first pass and some of those lessons learned. As you said, not for use, but if someone wants to see that evolution of those ideas, if they're interested in doing their own language, is there anything else you want to plug? Any upcoming appearances? I don't know if you go talk at Python conferences or any of the other cross functional conferences that are out there just sharing about Coconut. Anything else you go to? Other recommendations you want to make sure people know about?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the big one is I'm going to be presenting a poster at PyCon in Portland over the summer. So I'm really excited for that. That's actually coming up in just a couple of weeks now. I think like three or four weeks from now is going to be PyCon. It's really exciting. There's going to be all sorts of different presentations and posters and all sorts of fun stuff that's going to be talked about. And I'm going to be one of the people that is sort of presenting along those lines. And of course, I'm going to be talking about Coconut, And I'm going to be presenting on Coconut and sort of explaining to a PyCon crowd sort of all of the things that we have talked about today. So, yeah, I'm really excited for that. If somebody is hearing this and they're going to be at PyCon, definitely come find me. The poster session, I'm going to be there talking about Coconut. So, yeah. Otherwise, there's not really that much else that I would want to plug. I mentioned Undet. That was the sort of thing I worked at Yelp that I used a lot of the parsing knowledge that I had from Coconut. That's sort of probably another one of my big projects that I sort of wrote at Yelp and then wrote the blog post out. So definitely if you're looking to try and refactor good tool for refactoring your code, definitely check that out um, as well.
0: And then what are the best places for people to find you online? We'll get the blog post that you mentioned about Yelp giving an overview of that tool. But now where's the best people to find you, what's going on with you and Coconut Lang, and we'll get... All these links in the show notes as well that you mentioned.
1: Yeah, so best place to find me is on my GitHub, which is evhub ev. As far as Coconut, Coconut's website is coconut lang.org. From there, there are links to Coconut's GitHub, which is just Coconut under my GitHub. There's a tutorial on the documentation, which are hosted on Read the Docs, which is a great place to start the tutorial for learning coconut and the documentation for getting a sense of you see something you want to look it up and you want to try and understand more thoroughly what's going on the documentation and the tutorial are both sort of awesome resources for those things yeah other than my github oh i should definitely mention this coconut has a chat room so that if people want to ask questions about coconut i try to check that pretty much daily and respond to any questions i check it daily though i often Other people will still get to the questions before I can because there's a lot of people who work on Coconut who use Coconut to hang around there. And so that is Coconut's Gitter. The link to that is just gitter.im slash evhub slash coconut. And that is a great place to sort of go to ask a question about Coconut, chat about Coconut. If you're interested in getting involved, you want to try and like you're having troubles working at it. you want to do open source stuff with Coconut, anything along those lines, definitely the Coconut chat room, that's the place to
0: go. Sounds good. And I'll get the appropriate links in the show notes. So anybody can come back to the site or pull it up as they're watching, hit the link, open it up and find out more and be able to trace back to these instead of remembering all the URLs as they're rattled off. So yeah, I'll make sure to get those all in. Great. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Evan, for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking to you. Very informative on Coconut and also informative on Python and how some of the stuff fits in to Python just by itself and what Coconut starts to bring to the table and what it's like to add on to a language while keeping the existing language there. So lots of interesting things to think about and set the stage for. So thanks for taking your time to join me. And it was very interesting and informative to hear about some of these other worlds we don't necessarily think of with functional programming.
1: I was glad to be here. Thank you so much.
0: Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.